From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is The Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Sarah, multimedia producer and your host for this episode. This Easter holiday marks the 100th anniversary of the Easter Rising. And what happened during the Easter Rising exactly? Well, something floated back to me from European history class about Ireland's struggle for independence. To confirm my hunch, I visited OxfordReference.com. The facts are these. In April 1916, about 2,000 members of the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army took up arms against British rule in Ireland. They hoped to take advantage of British participation in World War I, but according to a dictionary of British history, These plans did not come to fruition exactly. A national rebellion on Easter Sunday quickly became a small, concentrated uprising in Dublin. An entry in the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Modern World describes how rebels occupied key buildings and waited for the British to respond. The proclamation of the Republic was read aloud on Easter Monday, but by Saturday the 29th, the rebels formally surrendered. Hundreds of people were killed. The British declared martial law and executed key members of the resistance, and the remaining rebels were sent to prison camps. My next step was to call up some experts for a more in-depth understanding of the Easter Rising. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Can you hear me? That's me okay. chatting with Dr. Okay. William Murphy, a lecturer in history at Dublin City University and author of Political Imprisonment and the Irish, 1912-1921. through 1921. Its origins are long-term in that it Uh, grows out of the Irish nationalist demand for independence from Britain, which has been growing through the late 19th and early 20th century. And then in the short term, it grows out of a crisis called the Third Home Rule Crisis. And that follows the attempt by the British Liberal Liberal government in 1912 to introduce a form of limited uh, sovereignty for Ireland called Home Rule. But that development is opposed by unionists in Ireland and by conservatives in Britain who don't want to see the breaking up of the United Kingdom. So during the Home Rule crisis, a number of paramilitary groups had emerged in Ireland. Uh, In the first instance, there was a group called the Ulster Volunteer Force, uh, which uh, was um, a unionist force. Um, And it was established to oppose the introduction of Home Rule. And in response to that, Uh, nationalists, both constitutional and uh, radical, um, formed a sort of counter group called the Irish Volunteers. And it's the Irish Volunteers that will be used uh, as the force, uh, at least the main force uh, to participate in the Easter Rebellion. It's manipulated by a small group, a minority of a minority within Irish nationalism called the Irish Republican Brotherhood, who are a secret society dedicated to the establishment of an Irish Republic. And they effectively use membership of the Irish volunteers to launch a rebellion at Easter 1916, along with a couple of other smaller groups, a group called the Irish Citizen Army, which was essentially a trade union paramilitary group. Also, there was a female auxiliary groups who were supporters of the Irish volunteers. Common them on, in particular, is the most important women's organization. There's controversy among radical nationalists whether a rebellion is the appropriate thing to do and whether it might be a success. And uh, there is a dispute in the week leading up to the rising 
as to whether in fact it should take place at all. And there are a series of orders sent out to Irish volunteered members that they should assemble on Easter Sunday. And then there are counter orders saying that they shouldn't. And in the midst of all this confusion, activity doesn't play, take place on Easter Sunday when it had been planned, but eventually does take place on Easter Monday. Uh, and the, the numbers are very small. It was always very unlikely to have been a success. Indeed, many of the leaders it could be argued, you know, never had any real hopes uh, that they would achieve Irish independence immediately. But what they hoped was that in failing, uh, they would offer a sort of renewing sacrifice, which would uh, inspire another generation of nationalists to uh, rebel sometime in the future. I was wondering what it must have been like to make the decision to join this rebel minority and to face British forces. So I called up Fergal McGarry, a reader of history at Queen's University Belfast and author of The Rising, and asked him about the perspective of the rank-and-file revolutionaries. Yes, yeah, so my, my book uh, was one of the first books to use this new source that became available, which was called the Bureau of Military History, and it had, it, it had almost 2,000 accounts of kind of ordinary people. What's new about this is, in a sense, it gives you the insight of kind of ordinary people from kind of working class or lower middle class backgrounds, the kind of people who didn't keep a lot of letters and diaries to give us an insight into their motivations. A lot of them were politicized because of a sort of a, a sense of Irish cultural identity. Um, a lot of them are kind of a sense of discrimination of maybe being second class people within their own country. So it's a, it's a less, uh, ideology is much less important and the sort of everyday experiences are, are, are much more um, central to how people become revolutionaries. And also there's a lot of kind of non-political factors in some ways, like the, the, a, lot, a lot of young men found the idea of joining um, a, a paramilitary movement like the Irish Volunteers and getting a gun and training, um, you know, a kind of exciting thing to do. So you get these factors which really cut across all the, 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 the political boundaries of the time. They didn't know what was going to happen next. And a lot of them didn't even have a good sense of what the rising was. So the leaders, for example, the most the most important kind of fact about the Easter Rising is that there was a proclamation that the Republic was proclaimed. But if you look at the accounts of the ordinary volunteers, a lot of them were surprised. I mean, a lot of them didn't even notice the Republic being proclaimed. But also quite a lot of them were surprised that a Republic was proclaimed. And what that kind of gives you an insight into is the Rising was organized by leadership with, with a huge degree of secrecy. And so they didn't exactly tell most of the ordinary volunteers and the ordinary rebels what was likely to happen. So you do get a, a very different set of um, perspectives when you look at, at, at ordinary people because they were so much less well informed about what the, the thinking of the rebel leadership was. The other thing which you, you get is, um, you know, during Easter week itself, it seems a kind of a, a dramatic kind of moment. Uh, and in some ways, of course, it does. But most of the rebels are kind of holed up in the different garrisons all week long. Uh, and they don't actually have a huge amount to do. So you get this kind of sense of what people did to, to pass the time, the, the food they ate, or what comes across really strongly in a lot of the accounts is that there's a real kind of sense of um, Catholicism, Catholic nationalism. And again, that's something that's slightly at odds with the proclamation of the, the leaders, which is a much more kind of radical, secular document. The resource Fergal mentioned, the Bureau of Military History, is full of primary source materials about the revolutionary period in Ireland from 1913 to 1921. These witness statements, documents, photographs, and voice recordings were collected by the state between 1947 and 1957, and in 2001, these materials were released into the public domain. I browsed their online photo gallery 
and found an image of some Irish volunteers during Easter week 1916, posing casually with weapons, looking very young and earnest. I also came across a photo of an armored car used by British forces, its hulking frame crouched over a cobblestone street in Dublin. The voice recordings add another layer of perspective. I listened as William O'Brien shared his memories of 1916 leader James Connolly, who was executed. There were also voice recordings of women on the Bureau of Military History website, and I asked Fergal about their experience of the Easter Rising. One of the things a lot of people know about the Easter Rising is the proclamation, and the proclamation is a very radical document, and it's also radical in terms of its attitude to gender. You know, it begins uh, to Irish men and to Irish women, and there's a, it's very clear that, that there's a kind of a promise of equality. But if you look at how women are actually tr treated during Easter week, I mean, we tend to think of one or two really prominent women like Countess Markovic who are armed and play a role as combatants. But actually, most of the women, for example, in the general post office, which was the main garrison, um, you know, they're in the kitchen, they're, they're making food, or they're doing very gendered activities like nursing and carrying messages. You also have these really interesting accounts from women who, who aren't even allowed into the rebel garrisons, even though they're in the, the revolutionary um, female uh, organization coming them on. In some cases, they literally kicked their way in um, into the garrisons to fight with the men. What you kind of get there is it gives you a sense into how, on the one hand, this is a revolutionary moment, but also you do get a glimpse into how the outcome of this revolution, in many ways, is actually quite conservative. You know, the state that emerges in the 20s and 30s, and so you get those contradictions and tensions kind of there in the accounts at the time. I was interested to hear about where rebels who survived the Easter Rising were sent. William Murphy has written about this topic extensively. They arrest initially around 3,000 people. So they arrest far more people than actually participated in the rebellion. And the leadership of the rebellion, um, insofar as they can identify them, are court-martialed. And uh, 15 are executed in Ireland following court-martial. Uh, another uh, important individual called Roger Casement is tried for treason some months later in London and he's also executed. So there are 16 executions in the aftermath of the There are another group of about 140, um, largely men but one woman, who receive penal servitude sentences or hard labour sentences uh, following court martials. And they are sent to civil prisons in Britain and they are held under, you know, convict prison regimes in those prisons. But they send about 2,000 to Britain um, and they hold them initially in military detention centres, about seven or eight of them scattered across Britain. And eventually they transfer the great majority of them, about 1,800, to an internment camp in Wales called Vrongoch. Uh, it's a converted distillery, which has been turned into a prisoner of war camp uh, for Germans uh, earlier, but now it's converted into an internment camp for Irish rebels. There's another small number of internees who are held at um, a prison called Reading Jail and an even smaller number of female internees. There are only five and they are initially held at a prison called Lewis in England. So for the convicts, they experience the full rigours of, for instance, a penal servitude, servitude regime. No visitors, uh, 23 hours a day in your cell. So quite rigorous regimes for those convicts for the first six months or so and then under political pressure the british government um, decides that uh, it will collect those convicts together in one place so the conditions become less strict 
and they're they are eventually released in June 1917 again under political pressure uh, largely from Nationalist Ireland. The internees are held uh, uh, initially for the first month or so under very strict conditions again similar to convict conditions but then once they're moved to the camp in Wales the conditions are you know they're spartan but they can more or less organize their own lives inside the wire and the military authorities more or less stay outside the wire so they can they organize their own classes they organize their own sports and games um, one of the things this facilitates is the sort of emergence of a camp culture where uh, very often Frongok is referred to as sort of a university of revolution uh, so it becomes this place where alliances are forged where people learn about military strategy for their future rebellious activities. Um, they engage with uh, Irish language and Irish national sports to try and build up a sort of cultural sense, shared cultural sense of identity. So for some of the people who weren't involved in the rebellion at all, this actually becomes a place where they are transformed into rebels. Uh, I, I, should, I should qualify that by saying there are some people who went in and who never, ever, ever again wanted to have anything to do with rebellious activity. The great majority of them are released over the summer of 1916, so quite quickly. And then about another 600 stay in that camp or in Reading Jail until Christmas 1916. In Ireland, the events surrounding the Easter Rising and the treatment of the rebels seem to have a huge impact on Irish public opinion. You know, there are communities all over Ireland and families all over Ireland from which these 3,000 people have been taken. And those communities and families generally respond in a very negative um, way. Um, so there is sort of sentiment and sympathy towards the prisoners and resentment at the authorities for their imprisonment. And this uh, takes sort of inchoate and very emotional forms in terms of uh, people uh, collect um, tokens that uh, had been owned by the former rebels, now prisoners, and things like that, you know. Um, but also, it takes structural form in the sense of prisoner support groups, which emerge very quickly. Um, and there are two very important ones one called the Irish National Aid Association, and another called the Volunteer Dependent Funds. And these become the organizations which are the first steps towards the rebuilding of the sort of crushed radical nationalism in the aftermath of the rising. And they become, you know, the stepping stones to the formation of the new Sinn Féin party, which would become the vehicle, uh, the political vehicle for radical Irish nationalism after the rising. Fergal also discussed the aftermath in Ireland. Now, I think that, that only would have happened if there hadn't been a problem with the kind of legitimacy of British rule anyway, and also the, the broader context of the First World War, there's a lot of concern about whether Britain really will give self-government to Ireland. There's a lot of fears about conscription. So it's a very important wider context. Um, but it does bring about a shift in opinion, which really sees the moderate nationalist um, party, the Irish Parliamentary Party, disappear. And by 1918, you've got um, the, the political triumph in the general election of Sinn Féin, and essentially, a kind of Irish nationalism has converted to republicanism. And what what that really means is that a conflict will become inevitable because the British government will, will simply not agree to to give Ireland a republic. So it leads directly to the War of Independence, and you could even say it leads directly to the civil war as well, because the, 
treaty that brings the war of independence to an end doesn't give the full republic. So, so there are um, republicans who, who, who want to continue fighting on for what the republic that was proclaimed in 1916. Um, so out, out of the experience of Easter week comes a much more ruthless type of violence. It's not Easter week is kind of about self-sacrifice and martyrdom, whereas the violence that Michael Collins spearheads in the War of Independence is much more about guerrilla warfare, assassination. On the other hand, something else interesting happens post-Easter Rising, which is that some of the rebels who had been part of that the, the revolutionary movement in the years before the Easter Rising, they kind of get pushed aside a little bit because a much kind of um, a much larger, younger, more kind of um, masculine uh, organization emerges. I was curious, during this time in world history, what Americans, and especially Irish Americans, thought about the Easter Rising. There's a bit of a parallel here to the American Revolution. You know, small forces attempting to throw off British rule with many odds stacked against them. So I called up Robert Schmuel, the Walter H. Annenberg Edmund P. Joyce Chair in American Studies and Journalism at the University of Notre Dame, and the author of Ireland's Exiled Children, America and the Easter Rising. Some people favored the status quo. Others, and this would include someone like Woodrow Wilson, supported home rule. But there was a smaller section of the population that championed physical force republicanism. Among the Irish Americans, we tended to see a division uh, in two ways. One, what were called the constitutional moderates those who were backing Home Rule and the Irish Parliamentary Party. And then there were the more extreme Republicans, and some of them were members of Clanagale, which was the American counterpart to the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Bob also gave me an overview of how involved Americans were in the Rising, and what sort of support they gave to the rebels. Americans provided the equivalent of roughly $2.5 million to the cause of the Irish rebels, and that money bought arms, it helped to print publications, it helped to provide materials for the uh, rebels. But just as importantly, the United States offered inspiration to the Irish. We had broken from the British Empire. They wanted to do the same. So that America, for many of them, became a place of plotting and scheming. It's, it's interesting to point out that many of the more physically physical force Republicans wanted to uh, do something on behalf of Ireland because they had been exiled away from Ireland, exiled to the United States. In some cases, they were exiled for treason. And they kept the fires of Irish independence uh, aflame and wanted to uh, do what they could. So you see some figures leaving the United States in order to um, do their work over in Great Britain, and that included bombing campaigns uh, in London and elsewhere. So that um, America was a home to the people who were uh, interested in seeking Irish independence. And it stayed that way really through, throughout the uh, 
early phases of the 20th century and right into the Easter Rising of 1916. Tom Clark was a signatory of the proclamation. In fact, he was the first signatory. He was also one of the first of the rebels who was executed uh, after the Rising. Well, he was a naturalized U.S. citizen. And Dermot Lynch was the last person to leave the general post office, which was the major scene of the fighting during the Rising. Well, he too was a naturalized American citizen and returned to the United States after the Rising. And of the seven signatories, five spent time in the United States. All five of them fought at the GPO, so they were central figures in the um, Rising itself. And then there is Eamon de Valera. He was born in the United States. He was born in New York, returned to Ireland at a fairly young age, but he ultimately became a mathematics teacher and someone who was a leader during the Rising. He received a reprieve after being sentenced to execution and became a dominant figure in Irish politics throughout the 20th century. And his American birth, his American citizenship, were key factors in how he was identified during his long period, first as prime minister and head of the government, and then ultimately two terms as the president of Ireland. The most important figure in America who helped the Irish right before the Easter Rising was John Devoy. P.H. Pierce, the leader of the um, provisional government and a leader of the Rising, called him the greatest of the Fenians. And he woke up every day aflame with the idea, with the goal of an independent Ireland. And what's fascinating about John Devoy is that he worked in secret. He worked for Clanagale, but he worked also in public. He was a journalist. He was a speaker. Indeed, he founded a weekly newspaper, an important publication, The Gaelic American. If you've ever come across the poem Trees, then you're familiar with Joyce Kilmer, the American poet and writer. I was surprised to learn that Joyce Kilmer wrote quite a bit about the Easter Rising as well. Well, Joyce Kilmer made his living as a journalist and as an essayist, and he worked primarily for the New York Times Sunday Magazine. So you have the Rising itself lasting from April the 24th until April the 29th, and then there is a short hiatus, and then the executions begin. And on May the 7th, during the execution period, he contributed a long article to the New York Times Magazine with the title, Poets March in the Van of Irish Revolt. He identifies the importance of poets and scholars in the recent rebellion. And he quotes their poetry and what it meant to uh, to them. 
And in Ireland, the refrain over and over again is that the Irish rebellion was one that was um, really led by the poets and thinkers. Well, Joyce Kilmer broke the lance on that. I mean, he identified that um, early on. Uh, a few months later, in August of 1916, he had a long interview with a woman who had participated in the fighting in the general post office in downtown Dublin. And it is mostly direct quotation from this woman, what it was like, what she felt, how the people were treated. And it ends with um, this statement from her. We were a province and now we are a nation. We were British subjects and now we are Irish. This is what the rising of Easter week has done for Ireland. And that particular article had such a power and impact that someone, and I can't figure out who, but someone surreptitiously sent it back to Ireland and it was reprinted in a couple of newspapers against the censor's orders. And at the same time that Joyce Kilmer was writing journalism about the Easter Rising, he was also writing poetry. And one of him, his poems is called Easter Week. It's dedicated to one of the poets who had fought during the uh, Rising. And the last two stanzas, I think, are worth repeating the second to last one begins this way. There is no rope can strangle song, and not for long death takes his toll. No prison bars can dim the stars, nor quicklime eat the living soul. Romantic Ireland is not old. For years untold her youth shall shine. Her heart is fed on heavenly bread. The blood of martyrs is her wine. So that you have there in those two stanzas the bringing together of the rising itself and the religious dimension that Kilmer himself saw in it. Fast forward one century, and I'm wondering how the Easter Rising is remembered today and how its legacy has changed as time has passed. We'll describe the change in opinion. In each era, you know, it, get re it gets remembered in particular ways, I suppose, that reflect the contemporary politics of the era. On the 50th anniversary in 1966, Ireland is starting to modernize under a very modernizing Taoiseach. And he stresses that when people look back and remember 1916 and they think of the patriots of 1916 the way to be patriotic today is to build irish industry and be a good modern irish citizen so to speak once the troubles break out in northern ireland in the late 60s and they continue obviously from 1969 right up until the mid 1990s there develops a squeamishness about being seen to celebrate radical Irish nationalism or nationalism that's expressed through violence. So the southern state, which had been very active in commemorations, becomes slower about 
you know, devoting lots of money or time or attention towards uh, commemoration in that period. Since the peace process in Northern Ireland from the mid-1990s, there has been, I suppose, uh, a pickup in the prominence of commemoration again. And there's a big ballyhoo here in Ireland this year around the centenary. And it's quite interesting. There's a general election here at the moment. And, you know, there isn't an hour when some politician doesn't invoke 1916 as part of their attempt to communicate their contemporary political message. But there is still deep division within Nationalist Ireland, but let's take it beyond this, you know, among contemporary unionism mm -hmm. uh, about how we should remember 1916 and what 1916 means. Uh, if we remember 1916, are we endorsing some sort of violent basis for Irish nationalism? Are we, by extension, uh, endorsing those who might still be attached to the expression of their nationalism in a violent way? Uh, or can we uh, take some sort of more detached uh, historical approach and study and remember the era without necessarily being seen to endorse what the historical figures uh, ha had done in their own time? I asked Fergal the same question, and specifically about how veterans look back on 1916. There's a sense that there's a, a rediscovery of the Easter Rising, but not so much in the kind of uncritical way of, of earlier decades, but more sort of going back to look at some of the radical lives that had been basically written out of the textbooks and, and um, you know, that didn't play a, a significant part of the commemorations. So, for example, there's a, a lot of attention now in the role of revolutionary women, um, socialism, the role that um, artists and other radicals played. And the other big change that's happened is there's a, there's a, a much less critical view of um, the great number of Irish people who, who didn't support the revolution in that period. So, for example, the, when there was 2,000 people fighting in the in the GPO, there was 200,000 Irishmen who fought in the Western Front, and they were effectively kind of written out of history until recent years. So, so that's beginning to change as well, or that, that has actually changed quite significantly in the last decade or two. A field of study which has quite recently opened up and is really fascinating, I think, is, is the memory of the Easter Rising. So, for example, if you look at how veterans of 1916 themselves looked back on 1916 and how their views about 1916 changed over time, uh, it opens up all sorts of interesting questions. You know, in Dublin, for example, there were many radicals who got involved in 1916 and felt that the state that emerged uh, from that struggle was kind of disappointing. You know, it was conservative or Catholic. It wasn't a republic that they had fought for. And of course, most rebels fought for different kind of conceptions. Uh, you're looking at a, a very wide range of different views, everything from you know, romantic nationalism and Catholic nationalism to socialist and secular Republican views. And we also have a new source, which is um, called the Military Service Pensions. Over uh, 80,000 um, veterans of the revolution applied for pensions. 15,000 of them were successful. And as part of that process, they gave accounts in the 1940s and 1930s of what they had done in 1916. And you also get um, accounts of their lives afterwards. And one thing that comes across quite strongly in it is, you know, there's a lot of disappointment. Uh, you know, the rising, like all revolutions, didn't necessarily meet the, uh, the expectations and the hopes that people had. There's also a really interesting kind of gender dimension because um, you had women in movements like the Irish Citizen Army in 1916, and they were, kind, you know, they kind of had a, an equal status um, to a certain extent. Um, I, I, you know, 
more so than in the in the Irish volunteers. But what you find um, is that quite a few of these women who would have been feminists or socialists are kind of pushed aside to a certain extent. And so some of them actually used the remembering of 1916 to talk about the more equal roles that they had. The centenary celebrations included thousands of soldiers parading through Dublin, a 21-gun salute, a flypast of the Irish Air Corps, and, as the clock struck noon, a reading of the 1916 proclamation with descendants of the rebels represented in the audience. Remembrance and Paying Tribute is now a mobile global activity as well. The entire ceremony was broadcast over Periscope and YouTube. Thank you to William Murphy, author of Political Imprisonment in the Irish 1912-1921. through 1921. A handy paperback version is going to be released quite soon. Fergal McGarry, whose book The Rising has a new centenary edition out, and also recently published a book called The Abbey Rebels of 1916, A Lost Revolution. Robert Schmuel, author of Ireland's Exiled Children, America and the Easter Rising. And you, thank you for listening. More episodes of the Oxford Comment can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and, as always, on the OUP blog. And if you'd like to contribute to the conversation, please feel free to leave us a comment. Until next time, friends. <laughs>